right, guys, let's get into this. Um, turn to page 1068. <laughs> <laughs> work like that. It's a faster joke. I'm not a pastor. I'm a nurse. Okay. Um, Philemon, Philemon, however you want to say it. I don't know. I've heard it a thousand different ways. That's, we're going to go to that book. It's in the uh, New Testament. It's a tiny book. Um, Philemon, Philemon, turn there. We don't have anything up there, so just, you got your phone or your Bible, however you want to get there. I'll give you, I'll give you a moment. Okay. I read this book. I didn't even know this book existed. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to make that up. I came across it, um, I don't know, six months ago, and I've read this book 50 or 60 times now. I can't, I could not get out of it. It's such an odd book to me. It makes almost zero sense to me that it's even in the Bible when I first read it. It's, it's a private letter to Philemon, Philemon from Paul. Philemon? Phil. Phil. Philemon. Philemon. You guys know where it's at. You can say it how you want to say it. Okay. So I come across this book and I'm like stuck. It's, uh, what is it, 25? 25 verses. Does everybody feel pretty solid except for Bruce? I see him unfamiliar with his Bible. Oh! One microphone. Okay. All right. So let's read it and then we're going to get into it. I've got, um, I'm really trying to be organized for you guys today. Because I've read this, and I had so many directions in my brain that I was just caught up in, but I really tried to hone in on a couple things that we're going to look at, okay? So, here we go. This letter is from Paul, a prisoner for preaching the good news about Jesus Christ, and from our brother Timothy. I'm writing to Philemon, our beloved co-worker, and to our sister, Aphia, and to our fellow soldier, our cheap Archippus. Just go with these words, you guys. I do, I'm doing my best. But, um, and to the church that meets in your house, may God our Father and the Lord Jesus give grace and peace to you. I always thank my God when I pray for you, Philemon, because I keep hearing about the faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people. And I'm praying that you will put into action the generosity that comes from your faith as you understand and experience all the good things we have in Christ. Your love has given me much joy and comfort, my brother, for your kindness has often refreshed the hearts of God's people. That's why I'm boldly asking a favor of you. I could demand it in the name of Christ because it's the right thing for you to do. But because of our love, I prefer simply to ask you, Consider this a request from me, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner for the sake of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you to show kindness to, your, to my child, Onesimus. I became his father in the faith while here in prison. Onesimus hasn't been much use to you in the past, but now he's very useful for both of us. I'm sending him back to you, and with him comes my own heart. I want to keep him here with me for a while, while I'm in these chains for preaching the good news, and he would have helped me on your behalf. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent. I wanted you to help because you were willing, not because you were forced. 
It seems you lost Onesimus a while so that you could have him back forever. He's no longer a slave to you. He's more than a slave. He's a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he'll mean much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. He's wronged you in the way, in any way, or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. And I won't mention that you owe me your very soul. Dude, Paul, Paul's a wild dude. Yes, my brother, please do, the, do me this favor for the Lord's sake. Give me this encouragement in Christ. I'm confident as I write this letter that you'll do what I ask and even more. And one more thing, please prepare the guest room for me, for I'm hoping that God will answer your prayers and let me come and return to you soon. I profess my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus sends you his greetings. So does Mark, Arta, just Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you and your spirit. Okay. Um, this, this letter, this is a new way of thinking. This, whole, this little tiny letter is a complete upset to the thought of that whole community. Uh, the culture at that time <laughs> did not think this way. Um, there's a similar letter that's, it's not in the Bible, but there's a similar letter that was written around the same time. It was from a guy, uh, his name, he went, it was Pliny the Younger. Um, he was a senator, he was a lawyer, he was like a self-made man in his own right at the time. He had a, a man come to him, begging and pleading for like his life, crying, weep, like a whole thing, who was um, a worker of another person. So Pliny writes a letter to um, the man, which is, I think his name was um, Sibinius, something along those lines, I'm probably saying it wrong, about his runaway worker. And in the letter, he's like, Sibinius, this guy, he showed up, he's weeping and crying. I reprimanded him. I told him, you can't run away like this. This is not okay. I, I really just wrote him on it. Um, I'm sending him back to you. I want you to show him mercy because it'll look good for you if you show him mercy. The community, it'll make you look good. Um, I told him if he does it again, the full extent like of the law will, can come against him. You can do whatever you want with him if he tries it again. But this time around, just, just give him some mercy just so it looks good to, uh, on you. That, that is the mindset of the culture. It's a hierarchy right now. Um, Rome, Rome is it. Rome has taken, it, it conquers people. They go through. Um, the on, one of the only uh, communities at the time was uh, Greece. Like you hear of like the Greco-Roman period of time. Greece and Rome had similar thought processes. Um, the one thing that Rome liked about Greece too, that they was, Greece had the idea that if we conquer something or take something, we're not gonna like implode that country. We wanna um, partner with them and say, if you come underneath of us, we can kind of work together, but you'll just kind of be under our authority. So then uh, Greece had the idea that we're gonna um, resource the stuff instead of just blowing it apart. Um, when Paul writes this letter, he's not looking at a hierarchy like Pliny the Younger. Like that mindset was, 
I'm a senator, I'm a noble, I'm very important. His friend was a little less important. His worker was least important, okay? So they come into that. Um, so let's look at these three, three dudes in this tiny book. There's Philemon. So he was a wealthy Greek convert um, to Christianity. He lived in the city of Colossus. Uh, he became friends with Paul around like 52 to 55 AD. This would have happened when Paul was in Ephesus, he, uh, they would have met at that time. Philemon would have became a believer. He opened his home to the church in Colossus, which we just read at the very beginning. Um, Paul says, and to the church that meets in your house. So Philemon became a believer. He came from, he's Greek. He comes in, comes to the faith. Um, Paul wrote this letter when he was in prison around 62 A.D., which you would note that in uh, the book of Acts, around chapter 28, it talks about Paul being in prison when he was on house arrest. This is when this book is being written. So you refer to Acts, Paul's on house arrest, he writes some letters. That's, that's what's going on right now. At that moment, Philemon, I keep saying his name like eight different ways, thanks a lot, guys. Um, Phil. Phil. Phil is a believer for about 10 years. So who here has been of believer for 10 years or less? Raise your hand. Bam, got one in the back. <laughs> You're Phil. <laughs> no, so you got 10 years, okay? So keep, just, just put that, just shelf it. Put it in the back of your brain. He's been following the way for 10 years. Let's look at Paul. Paul grew up. Um, he became a Pharisee, which is pretty much a feat in itself because it was normal in the um, Jewish culture for your kid not to become a Pharisee <laughs> because there was a level of like memory and brain capacity that was required that we, I would be shocked if any one of us would have become a Pharisee at that time because they, they would memorize the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, like the, so then there's like, there's times where one of them would just rise above the rest of them. It was almost more expected that your kid, when they graduated from that, was going to go on to the craft of the family and move through, that you weren't going to be picked to become a Pharisee. But Paul does. Um, another thing that's kind of neat is he also was a tent maker, which we hear about. Side note, I was told once, I know we, there's the, the image of just making a tent that you sleep in, but a, a man told me one time that the tents that they're actually referring to was a prayer tent. So Paul made prayer tents, not like a sleeping tent, which actually makes more sense to me as a, as a Pharisee and as a trade craft within his own like, upbringing that he would create prayer tents, which were kind of like shawls that people prayed in. So that's just kind of neat. Fact check it. But um, so Paul becomes a Pharisee. Um, Paul gets converted to Christianity on his way to Damascus, which we read about. Um, Jesus himself shows up. That would have been somewhere around 33 AD. Um, interestingly, I think it's kind of interesting, Paul at one point, um, he claims to be that he was the best Pharisee of his generation in, in Philippians. But then he changed it, and he claimed that he's the least of the apostles. And I feel like that that thing right there, that's what the gospel does. 
because the gospel realigns your priorities. He doesn't take away the knowledge of what Paul learned as a Pharisee. He just lets Paul realize that you're the least of the apostles. When you live in me, you live in a humility that is different. So Paul's mind, it switched. He took all of what he knew growing up and how you could compare culturally, I'm the best of all of you. But in the family of God, I'm just, I want to be the least. You know, I just thought that's just such a neat thing to see Paul as a person. Um, this letter was written 30 years after Paul's conversion. It was delivered to him along with the book of Colossians by Onesimus and another guy, uh, Tychicus, I'll say which you would read that in Colossians chapter 4, 7, and 9. I'm just going to, I'll read it because I just turned to it. Um, Tychicus will give you a full report about how I'm getting along. He's a beloved brother and faithful helper who serves me in this Lord's work. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, to let you know how we are doing and to encourage you. I'm also sending Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, one of your own people. He and Tychicus will tell you everything that's happening here. It's interesting to realize the book of Colossians and the Philemon were sent at the same time. So imagine that idea. So Colossians, this book, this letter, this scroll, this whatever, this letter from Paul, an apostle, is brought into our church, Okay? And Phil gets his own letter. So he's like, oh, neat. Then Phil reads his letter, and he's like, oh, no. <laughs> and then they go through, and we all meet here, and we're like, man, Paul just wrote us this letter. He, we've got two letters. We're going to read it. And Philemon gives us the book of Colossians, because we're all Colossians. So he's like, yeah, you guys just wrote this is for you guys. And then someone's like, those are two letters? Because I... I want to guarantee that circulated rapidly. Because why? Because their slavery was there. So you have the idea of Anisimus, who just showed back up, which everybody knew he ran away. He's gone. He was a slave of Philemon, who was running the local church. There is a gigantic problem here. Just let that sit in. Sit in that for a second. There's a gigantic problem. I can't, I, people wanted that letter read. I could tell you who. Every slave in that church was like, I want this letter to be read. I heard about something because I see Onesimus is back and he's not dead. Because if you ran away at that time, there was, there was like serious repercussions for you. So we're going to get into this a little bit. What is this Onesimus? Onesimus is a common name that's given to slaves at the time. You were taken from, from your conquered country. Um, there's a good chance your name would be changed. There's just common names they would give them. The name means useful, which is why Paul drops that joke. He was useless. And guess what? Now he's useful. Little joke from Paul within the letter. But um, Onesimus... He was a slave to Philemon. He lived in his house. Uh, some people believe he was probably born within his house at the time. Um, 
We, what do we know? We know that he stole from Philemon. He ran away. He found Paul. He was discipled by Paul. He became a believer. And Paul sent him back to Philemon. Paul viewed, or, um, Philemon view, viewed Onesimus as a thief, a slave, and a runaway, while Paul viewed him as a disciple, a believer, a brother, and a son. So this book, it's got a glaring social injustice happening here, which is slavery. Um, we know it's an obvious problem. Okay, we see it. Slavery um, from our history is horror. It's unreal. It's unreal concept of how I know slavery to be. At this time, the Roman culture it was embedded in the idea. It was it. They would. They would come in and conquer a city, and um, they would take whatever they wanted. It wasn't about uh, it wasn't about a certain race or um, a place or anything. It was we took over Lexington, so we're going to take everything that we think is worth it. And what a lot of the times was it was the healthy, it was the wealthy, and it was the educated. That's who they're like. You're all coming with us. And then the elderly, the sick, they'd leave behind. So there would be like an idea where those cities would still kind of carry on in a totally different way. But they would, they would uh, suck the life out of it. And then they would bring you back to wherever they were, and they would say, all right, Rod, bam, he, this guy, he was an educated man. He was running some stuff. You, we're going to take you into the, uh, you're going to be in the business district. And we're going to put you in charge of these things. We own you, but... We're going to use your knowledge and stuff like that. They're going to look over here and be like, oh, we got some strength over here. Aaron, you look strong. Guess where you're going, Bubba? You're going to the quarry, and you're going to do some mining. That was the worst idea, was the mining and the quarries. They would bring you into uh, the economic sectors of stuff, if you were, like, again, with the education, health, just depending on what you were. Um, and then within the home. So that's where we find Anisimus, where he was, this is what he did. Um, I wondered I wonder about social injustices today when I'm reading this which is interesting even with what Lindsay and Bruce were talking about during worship I wonder about these things that uh, they're just gross these things that are a part of our society that's like, it's embedded in our society. But like, what do you do? What do you do? And like, because at that time, if it's, it's said that Paul really didn't address slavery in a, in a way, people have said like, he didn't say stop doing that. But I, I think he did because we'll get into that. There's, there's things when I ask myself about these injustices today, like things that go clearly against the gospel that are embedded in our culture. One of the, one of the ones that instantly came into my mind was like abortion. Like abortion is embedded in our culture in the way that um, culture has the idea that it's, it's, we have a right to it. A woman has a right to decide. And our culture says, it's okay. And then we go with it, and we get stirred up. And then you, do, you don't agree with it. I wonder what things we're going to look back at that we're going to say, that was unreal that we did that. 
and what I what I was curious when I started thinking about these different things, you know, you, we have it right now. Um, another thing that was, I was just at work and the news is on and this, the movement of how we have it woke, being woke, that's a movement right now. We have, um, we have multiple things that are an injustice to society. What I wondered was, would I write a letter to Rome or would I write a letter to Philemon? Like, think about that for yourself. Like, you have something that your, your heart is against, or it's against the gospel. You see it socially. And then we see what Paul does. Does Paul write a letter to Rome? Or does he write a letter to a person? Verse 8 and 9, this is the, ver- these are the, this is the spot that, like, clinched into my heart. Paul says, that's why I'm boldly asking a favor of you. I could demand it in the name of Christ because it's the right thing for you to do. But because of our love, I prefer simply to ask you. Consider this a request for me, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner for the sake of Christ. Paul addresses slavery not on a social level, but on a heart level. He's not just saying whatever he thinks or believes based off of his right as a believer. He leans on the problem from, a, from friendship with Philemon. He leans on the problem through relationship, not his leadership of Philemon. I said this before, a quote from C.S. Lewis says, we don't come to the scripture to learn a subject, but to steep ourselves in a person. Philemon was a man who loved God while being embedded in Roman and Greek culture, all the while giving Jesus access to continue converting him every day. I don't, I just want to see it. I want, I want it. I want you to see the idea. I want you to see that you have a believer. You have a man who was converted, who because of society allowing slavery as Roman culture that we, we, we brought, we own this culture now. We took these people, we conquered them. They are upholding the infrastructure of our city because if you removed all the slaves at that, in a moment, of these people that they took from every tribe, tongue. It, didn't, it, wasn't, like, it, it wasn't a people group. It was countries. It was, ide- it was they took the whole thing. They took the wealth and the knowledge and the, everything of that country's strength. And Rome was like, I don't care. We're taking it. Now you're ours. And then they were, they were integrated within the culture. And it's not right. So now you see that. And now you have a church You have a man who's following a new way who came from a culture that said, this is okay and you're good. You're doing great because you're wealthy and you've got multiple people that you own that you consider your property. They were not a part of um, the census. They had no rights. They were considered property. And Philemon now is a believer. So he's working on becoming better and following the way, which isn't a subject, it's a person, it's not a checklist, it's a man, it's God, 
and Philemon's been introduced to him through a friend, and Philemon loves this new way enough to make his home the church in Colossus. Colossians get their letter from Paul. They also have a letter from Philemon, and people want this letter to be read. So they probably read it. Philemon, the thing about this letter, there's no resolve here. There's no resolve. We don't, we don't have one going back, being like, got it. What happened? I have to believe, um, I feel like this is where a relationship, there's something that, even this morning, you guys, I'm, I'm not trying, I don't want, gosh, I don't want us to feel uncomfortable with sharing with each other the goodness of God. Because when you have a Our hearts need to be open. They need to be open to each other. There's, you, I, want, I want our hearts to be open to listen and to share. There's just a back and forth. To not be jealous and competitive of our victories, of our failures with the gospel, with life. Feeling that you're not enough, or you're more than enough. I feel like there's three people here. There's Paul, Philemon, and Onesimus. There's an apostle, a slave owner, and a slave. There's, an, a, there's a person in prison, there's a free man, and there's an own man. There's like, the idea is like it's, I'm reading it, and I'm like, I'm all of these guys. And too often do I make myself Paul. Any problems I have, I'm usually Paul in my head. I'm always like, oh, somebody's wrong. I'm going to tell them what's up. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, I'm rarely Philemon, and I don't know if I've ever made myself Onesimus, unless I'm like, I've been so wrong. <laughs> you know, like, so this dude steals, and he leaves. He, he heads out. Philemon stays, keeps running the church, and Paul's in prison. Our hearts have to be open. Our hearts as believers, the gospel is like, it's like a self-correcting thing for us. It's, it rem- it's, why, it's why when Jesus says, like, he will prune us, like, there's, there's, a, there's an idea that you take a little tree and you prune it, and then you step back, and you allow it to grow more. That's the gospel. Jesus comes in and he'll prune you, then he'll allow you to grow. Why? Because it's a back and forth relationship. It's not one-sided vulnerability. One-sided vulnerability is an enemy of the gospel. Um, Jesus, in real life, in the way, will self-correct if we let him. And Jesus expects us to be vulnerable to him. He expects us to be vulnerable to each other. He was very vulnerable to us and always is. If you look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 3 and 5, 
says, why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye and you'll see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. This, this is one-sided vulnerability to me. What makes this man the hypocrite is not that he called out a speck in his friend's eye. They say he does not allow his friend to take the log out of his eye. It's one-sided. He wants to be there. He's not a jerk. Jesus says he has friends. What he's doing is you're saying, I, I see all of your problems. I'm not sharing any of mine. I'm not allowing that. Because if you read it backwards, you'll, you'll see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Which means I can see well enough to talk to Scott, to say something to him. Why? Because I let somebody get the log out of my eye. I was vulnerable to let them do that. It just goes, it goes backward. I'm no longer a hypocrite because I allowed my friend to help me with mine. I, I've had a, a privilege of having friendships for my whole life. Um, Andy, my friend Andy Vincent, I grew, we grew up together, we're cousins, but we've, my earliest memory, which I verified with my aunt, because I wasn't sure if I made it up or not, but I remember sitting in a seat next to him, and we had uh, these plastic snakes that go back and forth. You know, they don't do anything, but they just wiggle back and forth. And we got them, and we went camping, like our family all went camping, and they borrowed a bus from their church, so we were on this tiny bus, and I remember sitting in the seat, we're wiggling our little plastic snakes around. I was four years old, verified the, because I'm like, I remember this. Anthony's was like, yeah, this is when this happened. I'm like, I was four years old. I remember that. I remember, um, I remember getting shots for kindergarten with Andy. <laughs> we went to school together. Um, I remember when he broke his arm and he had to sit like this next to me because <laughs> he broke it so bad. However, they decided that he had to keep his arm up. So we would sit next to each other in the stupid double desk, and he had his hand up the whole year. Um, why? I don't even know if we switched sides. I feel like, I don't know. He's kicking me. We went to Indian Woods together. We went to middle school together. We went to high school together. Um, we were in a band together. We still get breakfast together. It's 38 years now of working memories with him. Um, I have another friend. For 29 years, I've been friends with Brad Sunberg. Brad and I met in high school, ninth grade. Sunberg Thompson, we stood next to each other in gym class. Um, we had homeroom together. We became locker partners. Um, we bashed mailboxes together one time. I ran over his foot in my Honda. It was Brad's <laughs> idea. I know things about Brad that you guys don't. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, at this point, if I stick with Brad, Brad is more than an acquaintance to me. He's more than a friend to me. 
I would say he's more than a brother to me because through life, and if you take the last 20 years where you can put God in the mix of our life, Brad has spoken life into me. Like he, he has, he's pointed me to Jesus at times that I did not see him. And I was standing right next to him. I was Phil, and he was Paul. And there was an access to my heart because of a friendship, because of a relationship. Because this book is an idea of how personal God is. It's a letter that feels misplaced to me in the scriptures. It shows us to keep our hearts open to love. And by that, when Paul says, out of love, like that's what I, that sticks out to me, like out of love, what are you even talking about, Paul? There's another part in um, 2 Corinthians, Paul writes about being constrained by love, like constrained by God's love. If I present the gospel constrained by love, by God's love, not only will it bring me absolute freedom, the gospel will protect itself and it will protect me. When you use the gospel outside of love, that's dangerous, man. Because it's truth and truth doesn't budge. It's hard. It's unmovable. And um, I am such, I'm not a fan of um, being brutally honest. I'm unimpressed by that statement. It's, it's, uh, it's not the gospel. I have conversations. I have such good friends at work. They're, I love my coworkers. Like, I love them. I've been working with these guys like 10 years now. I'm in the cardiovascular lab. We went to a retirement party. One of, my, one of them retired. He's been there for 42 years. We go to uh, Wings and etc. I have a retirement party on Friday. Um, the whole crew is there pretty much. And we're all like hugging each other. And Kate's like laughing. She's like, you guys hug each other every morning coming to work? And I was like, no, now that you say that, it is weird we were hugging each other. There's alcohol involved. They had their pre-gaming before I got there. So they're feeling loose. Um, I love them. I absolutely love those guys. There's a truth that comes with the gospel that it, it, ha- it has to be packaged in love. Paul addresses a social injustice in love. He leaves it for Philemon to discuss it. Um, Philemon was not presented with a choice. It wasn't right or wrong. He wasn't presented with you're wrong and I'm right. He was presented, deny yourself and follow me. That's what Paul presented him. And, and I know it because Paul denied his authority as an apostle, asking Philemon to deny his authority as a slave owner, not teaching Philemon a subject, but steeping him in the character and nature of God. Paul was like, in this, in this injustice, this thing that society says is right, deny it. Deny it. Like, deny yourself. Deny your, our right as a believer. We use that in an offensive, aggressive way where I feel like Paul teaches us here, if anybody had the right, it's Paul. 
if any one of us has the right to come at an injustice with the gospel, it's Paul. What does Paul say? I'm not, I have every right to. I'm not. I'm asking you in love. Out of relationship that has been happening. The other thing I love about Paul is uh, Paul discipled Onesimus and then he became a convert. Like, he didn't convert. Like, I, I feel like Paul, there's a, there's a thing where Paul will, um, Paul disciples a slave and corrects a believer. We disciple a believer and correct a slave. Why? It's backwards. We come in with, a, with an authority, with a right, and we leave out things sometimes that are love because it, there's something that stirs in you. It stirs in, in you when, you when there's something that just goes blatantly against the gospel. So what do you do with that? You have to be constrained by love. We're going to wrap this up a little bit here. There's uh, Timothy Keller. He just passed away. He's, um, he's an amazing He's a, he's, he was a pastor in New York. Anyways, this book is great. I would recommend it. Um, we're going to read from it. It says, love, um, the ultimate freedom is more constraining than we might think. What then is the moral spiritual reality we must acknowledge to thrive? What is the environment that liberates us if we confine ourselves to it? Like water liberates a fish. Love. Love is the most liberating freedom loss of all. One of the principles of love, either love for a friend or a romantic love, is that you have to lose independence to attain greater intimacy. If you want the freedom of love, the fulfillment, security, sense of worth that it brings, you must limit your freedom in many ways. You cannot enter a deep relationship and still make unilateral decisions or allow your friend or lover no say in how you live your life. To experience the joy and freedom of love, you must give up your personal autonomy. Human beings are most free and alive in relationships of love. We only become ourselves in love, and yet healthy love relationships involve mutual, unselfish service, a mutual loss of independence. C.S. Lewis put it eloquently, Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. Freedom, then, is not the absence of limitations or constraints, but finding the right ones, those that fit our nature and liberate us. For a love relationship to be healthy, there must be a mutual loss of independence. It can't be just one way. 
Both sides must say to the other, I will adjust to you. I will change for you. I will serve you even though it means a sacrifice for me. If only one party does all the sacrificing and giving and the other does all the ordering and taking, the relationship will be um, exploitative. Exploitative? And will oppress and distort the lives of both people. One-sided vulnerability is the enemy of the gospel. Be constrained by love means to open your heart to receive correction and teaching. And I feel like within this, we see where there's social injustice that are allowed by society. And the gospel comes in and speaks to a heart, not to a nation. It speaks to a relationship. Moreover, which then challenges my ideas of like, it's less easy when you don't have eyes in front of you, you say whatever you want. Because I have friends who, I have, I have good friends who believe they have the right as a woman to have an abortion. I have good friends who have siblings who are homosexual. I have good friends, I have these friends all around me. So what do I do? I have a relationship with them. I love them. I share the gospel with them. How does that look? It looks like just what Paul said, deny yourself and follow him. It's the Lord's. It's the Lord's. It's the Lord. And I think sometimes we come in with an authority of the gospel without love And I just wonder, had Paul done that? Because look at the moment. Look at when Philemon is leading the church and Paul corrects him personally, pulls him aside and says, we need to address this. He's not a slave. He's coming back to you because under law, I cannot harbor a runaway slave because I'm also a citizen of Rome. He's coming back to you. He's more than a slave, Philemon. He's your brother. He's my heart. He's, a, he's an equal to you. This changes that moment because now he has to make a decision because he has the church in his house. And I just wonder what happened. And there's, no, there's really nothing that's set. Like all of the um, theologians and things, there's, there's a, you, you can't like, you can't pin it down, but some lean towards this and I love it because I feel like it just it makes my heart happy. Um, there are some writings that believe um, Philemon became the bishop of Colossus, and Onesimus became the bishop of um, Ephesus, taking over for Timothy. And the reason they think that is because Onesimus was a slave name. It was given, like, even like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when Babylon took over, they changed their names to that, because those names aren't Hebrew names. They changed them because... Those names honored their gods. So it was like almost, almost, it was offensive to change their name. So Onesimus probably, whether he was born into it, he was given the name, it's useful. Not he's useful, it's useful. That's what we're going to call you. So to see a bishop named Onesimus, it's very unlikely that he was not a slave. And to put it within the context of where they were, where Ephesus was 80 miles away, from the city of Colossians. I want it. 
I want to believe it. And I have to believe. And then the other thing is, that's why they wonder that this, if he was the bishop at the time, and when they started bringing the canon of the Bible together, I feel like he was like, I have a letter that needs to be in there because it speaks to an injustice that I was a part of. And now that I'm leading this congregation, it's the gospel. That's good, bro. Yeah. That's good. And I just think like, uh, had not, had not Paul came to him in love about an injustice that was universal at the time, what would the church have looked like? So I feel like sometimes we can, we can blanketly and aggressively say ideas of the gospel without love. And where does that get us? I don't know that it gets us anywhere. So today I just want that to be the, the challenge of the rest of our lives, to be constrained with love. And when we present the gospel, to lead with love and to know that discipleship comes before salvation at times, and it needs to, and that we need our hearts to be open to each other, to receive education from the Lord, to receive correction from the Lord, love from the Lord, to have that to go back and forth, to not have one-sided vulnerability, but to be exposed to a letter from a friend. So that's, that's what we got today. So I want to encourage you guys, just read through this again. Mull it over this week. Just pick out what the Lord has for you in this book. Um, next week, we're not here. Oh, we're gone. Um, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to pray, and then uh, Brad's going to come up, and we'll close this. So, Lord, thank you so much for your word. God, um, we're so grateful for your love for us. God, please constrain our hearts in your love. Um, and let us share your truth through that love um, with our friends, with our coworkers, with our families, with our enemies, with ourselves, with, with everybody, Lord. But that we, um, God, that we're not shy to address something that is just completely against your spirit and your word. But God, within that, that we stay in your spirit and in your word. Lord, that, there's, that we put a person on the other side of our words, God, that we don't come in so aggressive, God, that we set ourselves aside and we follow you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.